Hello and welcome to the Strength Save Podcast. Strength Save is a podcast where two nerds talk about their journey to live healthier lives and the games they love. During the first couple of episodes, you'll hear us refer to the podcast as Slothcast, or the podcast yet to be named. When we recorded those episodes, we hadn't decided on a name yet, so we just wanted you to be prepared. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope it helps. Hello and welcome to the Slothcast. This is Blaine, your co-host, and with me as always on this very first episode is one Christopher Zumski, my faithful stalwart ghoul manservant. Hello, Chris. What you just call me? <laughs> A yeah. faithful ghoul manservant. Yeah, man. If anyone's going to be manservant, you can be manservant. Granted, this was your idea and initiative, so I it can is. be at least your Red Hood to your Batman. That's acceptable. Or your, Wonder, uh, or your Wonder Woman to your Superman. That's more disturbing, but I guess that also works. But I mean, I, I, how are your lasso skills? Are you good with the lasso? Probably better than you are. <laughs> Almost certainly. I, I do handle I, rope from time to time, so... <laughs> I would wager that it would be very difficult for you to be worse with a lasso than I am. Granted, I've never used a lasso, so I can't say that uh, for certain, but I don't think I have lasso skills. Well, well if, this, if this ever becomes the thing, then yes, we will have to attempt at some point lasso skills. Yeah, I guess if if we get listeners and the listeners want us to have a lasso off... We can we can invite some poor schlub over uh, and have them run about in the yard while we attempt to lasso them. I was going to say we should probably start with inanimate objects like logs. I guess that's better. Before we try to pay like spike money to be lassoed. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Just seems like less fun if you're not lassoing people. This is one hell of a non sequitur right out of the gates. <laughs> yeah, and in case you're curious, this has absolutely nothing to do with what this podcast should be about. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in a weird CrossFit sort of way, perhaps, it's oh, yeah. it's health-related, uh, but neither of us are CrossFitters, and I don't think either of us will ever become CrossFitters, so... I, well, sir, I did attend a CrossFit gym for about three-quarters of a year. And oh wow! It is a good time. I, no joke. I at one point was down to like two hundred pounds, the healthy two hundred, and then I got lazy again. <laughs> that happens. So I don't know how many times I've lost forty to fifty to sixty pounds, only to just regain it all. Well, for me, it was um, it, it was work, right? Because. Uh, nine times out of ten, real life gets in the way of you trying to lead a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, it's nice to be able to go to the gym every day and cook a nice healthy meal every evening, but there are just those days where 
You have to get up early to go to work so you don't have time to go to the gym. You get home and you're just exhausted and the option is I can cook something or I could pull up DoorDash and have someone bring me fried chicken from Royal Farms that I can then stuff in my face while watching Netflix. And in case anyone doesn't know what Royal Farms is, it is the best gas station fried chicken you could find. Oh God, it's so good. At least, it is. At least in the Northeast-ish, closer to Maryland area. I cannot speak for anywhere further north or south. Now, I know south, yeah, you guys probably got banging fried chicken. We don't got that up here. Also, we shouldn't be eating fried chicken. Uh, yeah. It's, it's the fried chicken that's made from pork rinds and you're on keto. Yes. Although, uh, as I told you not too long ago, I did find out that a Royal Farms chicken tender only has four grams of carbs, which is dangerous, dangerous knowledge to have. Uh, just like I found that wine that practically has no carbohydrates in it. Yeah, yeah these are these are things that we don't need in our lives. As uh, but do want, but but want so badly. So that actually does get us a little bit closer to on topic. So for anyone tuning in, this is our very first episode, and our plan for this podcast is to do two things. The first is to talk about fitness being any kind of fitness topic from working out to dieting to interesting products to try, uh, which is one of our, our passions. And then the other is to nerd out about stuff because both of us are uh, incredibly large nerds. Yes. Both figuratively and at this point, literally. Yes, hopefully, hopefully not so literal for terribly long. Well, the part of the reason we're doing this podcast is this is extra incentive for us to follow the diet we have both just recently started as of varying time frames about a month or two ago. Yes, it is a, a form of social accountability. Uh, by letting any poor, hapless soul that comes across this podcast know about our uh, struggles and our victories with our new healthy lifestyles or healthy, healthier yeah, lifestyles, healthy adjacent lifestyles. Yeah. And um, I, use us as role models? Yes, I, <laughs> I, I can safely say if the two of us can become healthier, which we are doing, or at least cautionary uh, tales. Yes, I think that uh, just about anyone can make that transition. Because I know, speaking for myself, um, and I've heard enough stories from you, our twenties our into early thirties were just about as unhealthy, I think, as you can get. Well, the main difference between you and I, up until I was um, 28, I was in the Army Reserve, so I had to keep a modicum of fitness, which is why yes. I did a CrossFit gym, because when you do CrossFit, you can then eat like garbage and not gain the weight. Yeah, sadly, I did not have that incentive, uh, so I just ate like shit and drank too much uh, yes. and was rewarded with a body to match that lifestyle. Yes. And when I got out of the army, 
I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to exercise for like maybe six months. So like three years later, not exercise. I'm like, oh, God, walking up the stairs feels like exercise now. This isn't good. I have a gross body now. Yes. Mm, I need to fix this. Hence, the podcast will be inserted later here. Hey. Yes. And I had, I mean, I if you were listening to this in some magical future where the pandemic has ended, um, I was not at necessarily peak health or anywhere near peak health prior to the pandemic. And then uh, shockingly, after six months of barely ever leaving my house, I reached the point where like I would walk upstairs and be like, Ooh, this is a new type of pain that I have yet to experience from just walking up a set of stairs and uh, figured I should probably fix that. And that is why we have both started keto. Yes. So I, I will say that a large part of my decision to start keto was definitely because you started keto. And I think having having a buddy in kind of any fitness endeavor is a very good accountability booster. Oh, yeah. It's nice to have an accountability buddy or uh, to use weightlifting parlance, a spotter. Because let me tell you, sometimes it can be real rough dieting. My original choice for keto, I did it uh, going on almost two years ago now. I actually held strong to it for like a good six months. And I had experienced pretty solid results. Believe, Blaine, you saw me at the tail end of those results. Yes, yeah, when you first started coming to our board game meetup, uh, you were still still bringing pockets pockets full of meat sticks and nuts. Yes, (laughs) and the occasional cheese stick. And only drinking hard liquor. So basically, I stopped, like, I, great results. Then I took a break. The very first cheat was for Thanksgiving. And then it all went downhill from there. Which is why this new version of keto for me, I'm allowing myself maybe once or twice a month to be a little cheat. You know, uh, occasionally have, like, some bread. Or, you know what? screw it, I want to have these baked beans, even though I can't technically eat beans. Yeah, and I think, like, keto keto is a diet that as long as it's not, like, uh, going on a bender where for, like, a week straight you eat nothing but carbs, uh, keto is pretty forgiving to that yes. aspect. And for those, I guess this is a good time to probably take a brief moment for anyone listening to this who has no idea what we're talking about to give a little explanation of the keto diet. Yes, so keto is short for ketosis, because that is what you're trying to get your body to get into. What is ketosis, you say? Well, it's this. Normally, the human body, you burn the carbohydrates you intake as your primary source of energy. So under a standard diet, if you're eating the right amount of carbs, fats, and protein, you burn through carbohydrates, and then you burn fat, which is why it generally takes you on a normal diet, so long to burn fat with just exercise added on because you're first burning through all the carbohydrates. Which even on a non, even on a healthy diet, chances are you are consuming a large amount of carbohydrates. Generally, most people's diets consist of a large portion of carbs, but that's how our bodies are designed. The problem is with all the sugar that companies just cram into freaking everything 
Yep. At least American bodies are kind of screwed up. Keto basically skips over that. Now, depending upon the type of keto you're doing, I know Blaine is basically holding himself to somewhere around 25 grams of carbohydrates a day. I'm fluctuating somewhere between 30 and 40 because, like I said, I'm being a little bit more cheaty about things, so I don't go into a hard remission personally. Yeah. Yeah, as you've called it, dirty keto. Dirty keto, yeah. I'm doing a dirty keto. So because of that, when your body has that few carbs, it actually forces it to burn the fat first. And that's called ketosis. This diet has been around for a very long time. About 100 years ago, they started using it. And it's primarily, even still to this day used as a treatment for people with particularly bad epilepsy. The interesting thing is in a hundred years, they still haven't figured out quite the science of why the keto diet works for people. Um, as far as a, a way of reducing seizures, they just know that for whatever reason it does work. So for people who have uh, seizure related issues, who don't, who don't respond well to medication, keto is usually a means of them reducing the number of seizures they have. Also an excellent diet for people that have diabetes. Or in my case, where my family has a uh, history of diabetics in it, it's a good thing if all of a sudden you're somehow overweight, say from not exercising for three years and eating and drinking whatever the hell you want, and you somehow gained an extra 100 pounds, this might be the diet for you. Yes, speaking as someone who has a uh, also has a family history of diabetes and who was just pedal to the metal driving directly into diabetes territory. It is definitely that is one of the reasons that in a family history of migraine issues which keto also helps with, I figured it would be a good way to start to try and level my level the body out and now- you have experienced less migraines, right? Since you I have. Going. And I've, I've said, when we talked about this before, I don't know if work has been slightly less stressful the last month. So I don't know if having less headaches and migraines has been directly the result of keto or directly the result of working less hours or a mix of the two as of right now. But I can say that in the last month, I have had significantly less headaches and migraines than in the previous months. Well, I can at least personally attest myself. When I'm on keto, I find myself better focused and there's less of a, I guess, a mind fog is the best way to describe the feeling. Yeah. So yeah, I d- I definitely uh, have noticed that as well. So uh, that decrease in blood sugar and insulin levels are probably a factor in why you might be experiencing less migraines. Also, work not as bad. Yeah. I've also uh, been trying to reevaluate my relationship with caffeine. So, like, I still consume caffeine, but it's not an all-day affair as it used to be. Yeah. So there's probably numerous contributing factors all bunched uh, together. All bunched together, but I I will see a holiday is coming, so I the work factor will get amped back up. So we'll see if keto continues to keep the migraines at bay or not. But Yes. And and also of course the ever lovely 
stress that is the quarantine. Yes. Yeah, this is a naturally stressful time for everyone, even people like ourselves who don't normally suffer terribly from anxiety. It is impossible to not have at least a little bit. Yeah. Now, a lot of people have, we've, we've talked basically what is considered the standard ketogenic diet. Low carb, moderate protein, high fat. Yes. That is specifically what Blaine is doing. I've done that in the past with success. What I'm doing is closer, I call it dirty keto, but its actual name is cyclical ketogenic diet. So five days following the standard, but you're allowed to have two high-carb days. I don't necessarily stick to your two high-carb days. It's either that or less. So yeah, that's a good way to make sure, because it takes generally it takes two or three days for your body to really hit now like th- strong ketosis. Yes. Now, depending upon what your diet is originally, though, like if you are a heavy carb and you're not like, say, for instance, like this diet is not necessarily great for vegans and vegetarians. I understand that. But using them as examples where a lot of their calories come from carbohydrates because of their life choices, they would experience what is commonly called the keto flu a lot longer than you and I did. Yes. And the keto flu is basically that period of time where your body is switching from burning carbs to fats. And that, that experience will vary. Believe me, if you do decide to follow our examples and try keto, muscle through the keto flu. Yeah, it's going to suck. My, my best recommendation is uh, get lots of Gatorade Zero, or I use from Whole Foods an electrolyte. Uh, zero calorie electrolyte like powder. Yes. Which is essentially powdered powdered Gatorade. On your recommendation, Blaine, I actually picked up something similar with like a lemonade flavor and I yes. added it to water because also with the keto diet, you'll find that you're drinking an excessive amount of water. And one of the things you might or might not have because I know some people will find it hard to eat the amount of vegetables in a day. Having at least one dose of that electrolyte powder will just make you feel better. Yes. A large cause of like the keto flu in general is your body. Your When you are on keto, your body does not really retain water. And that's, that is the number one reason for the swift weight loss that people see in the first week of keto is your body is literally just dropping all of the water weight you carry. Correct. Um, and losing that much water is not, does not lead to you feeling good. Uh, so having electrolyte, uh, an electrolyte supplement, or like I said, even just Gatorade or Powerade Zero, yeah, to both again. replenish the water and get the electrolytes back into your body. Emphasis on the Gatorades and all the ones without the added sugar. Yes, it needs to be a sugar-free one, which the standards are not. They have yeah. as even generally even more sugar than soda. With keto, steer clear of two things: carbohydrates and sugar. That's it. Like, there are a bunch of, like, at some point in other episodes, we'll start talking about some products that have, like, these faux sugars and stuff that your body actually just can't physically process. Yep. And we'll say, okay, if it's got this, don't worry about L-O-Q-S or something. I got to actually see how that, all these different, like, chemicals they've devised have been, uh, how do you pronounce them? For the most part, if you want to follow a good keto diet, Minimal carbs 
and as close to zero sugar as you can give it. Because every gram of sugar is basically a gram of carbs. Yep. And I like I know for you personally, you tend to you drink your coffee black. Yes. Um, with the exception of like the canned canned La Colombe coffees. Well, those I just stay away from because those are delicious. Yeah, those are those are not keto keto friendly in any way, shape, or form. But I, like I personally have a ten like I pref- I I can drink my coffee black, but I prefer a little bit of cream and sugar in there. So I've had to well, play with. And there's a bunch of different. For, the, for that blame, I recommend a little bit of butter. Now, people say with the bulletproof coffee, which is a thing that is also good for keto, butter and MCT oil. If you don't want to get too fancy about it, and you want to have a closer feel, you can still do the butter for the cream-like factor for your like half and halves and whatnot. But I have, uh, for sugar, for a couple drops of stevia liquid artificial sweetener. I like stevia. Stevia tends to side a little bit sweet, too sweet for me. Well, that's the thing. If you get a little bottle of it with a dropper, then all you got to do is, you know, do half a drop. You know, you do as much as you can stand. Yeah. I've been using um, erythritol, uh, which is one of the one of the many now sugar replacements. Oh, is that the plant-based one? Yes. I actually I, have in my refrigerator now cooling a keto cheesecake oh made with that don't worry i'll do my best to save you a piece excellent i'm excited about that yeah one of the main reasons i went with erythritol over any other is and i like in trying it now i like the sweetness level of it um but the fact that it is more natural than some of the others where like so like Splenda, they basically just add chlorine to the sugar makeup to make it so that it doesn't get absorbed by the body. Yeah. Uh, um, the body doesn't want to absorb chlorine for some reason. But also from everything I've read, as far as like keto baking goes, erythritol is a little bit better than most other supplements as being a good, like actual replacement. If you want to say like bake a cake. Yes, um, I can tell you the cheesecake that I pulled out of the oven earlier. I was like, oh, "God damn, this thing looks awesome!" I can't, I can't wait. Yeah, I'm Four real excited, hours. real excited to hear how that turned out, and, and maybe try if if not if not a slice of this particular one, no, uh, no, the no, next no, no, one no. you make. Listen, this is just an excuse to actually for us to hang out in real life. I'm I. That works for me. Anytime you want to bring cheesecake as a reason for us to hang out. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, so definitely finding like your good sugar replacements are important. And I, keto is not a diet that you can just wake up one day and be like, oh, I'm going to start keto today. It is definitely a diet that requires some legwork on you. Some prep work. Right, right into our, uh, our, our last health topic for the day, which is setting up the keto pantry and just getting yourself ready for day one of keto in a way that you're going to be successful. And I think the most important thing is get rid of every piece of carb-laden food you might have yes. sitting around. Get rid of your um, breads, get rid of your pastas, throw the fucking sugar out the window for the end. Yep. And I know, especially since we are in a pandemic, I had made sure that my pantry was extra stocked. So I had like 12 boxes of pasta in my pantry. 
um, which is now in a bag, locked in a closet in the church next door, waiting to go to a food pantry where I cannot get to it. I still got to expose you to the uh, the other that Palmini product. Which oh, the artichoke heart heart pasta. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to try that because my first foray into keto pasta was not great. Yes, and neither was mine, which is why I'm all right. So, pantry prep. Yes. Clear out first, everything. throw it all out. Whoa, Burn whoa, whoa, whoa. tree to the ground. No, 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 and no. Mostly, what you want to do is look at all your products. If they have carbs that are over, say, like five grams of serving, get rid of it or put it off to the side and just pretend you don't have it. That's for the cheat days or the, the times when you've lost and gotten to your goal. And you want to have that remembering because those don't exist anymore. What does exist is, is things like almond flour tortillas yes and, and wheat germ infused quote-unquote bread and yes eggs and cheese so many eggs okay so a quick and dirty thing for people that want to just get it started in the morning breakfast you're going to want to just have some black coffee if you can stand it bacon and eggs you don't want bacon? How about sausage? Sausage works fine as long as it's not infused with like maple syrup. Yeah, and even a lot of those maple syrup ones are still pretty low in carbs. Yes. Once again, double check. As long as the serving is, like I said, kind of like under five grams per serving, then you're okay. Yeah. And then guess what? If you want to throw cheese on shit, you don't even need to look at what the calorie count is for that stuff. Just throw however much cheese you need on there to make it satiable for you. Yeah, you don't like broccoli? Guess what? Broccoli covered in cheese is delicious. Yes. So, breakfast time, you want to make sure you have eggs. You want to make sure you have some kind of other uh, source of protein. Hell, even if it... Does tofu have carbohydrates in it? Some? Not... It's not... Once again... Check the package, see what it says. Yeah, soybeans are like of the beans, the least carb yeah. intensive. Um, so, like, I know edamame is something I have every now and then because edamame still has more carbs than you want as part of your regular diet, but it Correct. is low enough carb that you can actually have some, as opposed to most other beans, which are immensely high in carbohydrates. Like, for instance, if you want a potato, don't. Instead, have a sweet potato. Still bad, but not as bad. Or, like, jicama has become my go-to mm. potato replacement. Yeah. So, all right, so you did breakfast. Then you want snacks. You know what kind of snacks you want? Nuts. But not the peanut. Some of the best stuff is, like, walnuts, pistachios. You can even get away with cashews. Those are kind of, like, the safe ones. And guess what you yeah, cashews are a little high, but like as long as you are careful. Yeah, like a handful of those a day isn't going to kill you. Don't eat the bag. And you know what you can eat with those as your snack? More cheese. And meat sticks. And meat sticks. Well, Although meat sticks, you have to be careful. Slim oh, Jims oh, 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 oh. have a, Yeah, let's, get, let's be real here. Real Slim Jims have a ton of carbs. But if you like, again, there are plenty of meat sticks out there that are not for laden with sugar. For instance, like uh, I think it's the Epic. Uh, yes. Product line, they have like 
especially if you want venison and buffalo and stuff. Now, I know they got purchased up by, like, some bigger corporation, and the quality has kind of went down for a bit, but it sounds like they're coming back up again. That's good, because I used to really like them. Yes. Um, oh, guess what's also a thing you can snack on? Pork rinds. Pork rinds all yeah. day. You, you know what I never ate before the keto diet? Pork rinds. And you know what I eat now? Pork rinds. And I kind of feel white trash about it, but don't feel too white trash, because they're pretty much guilt-free on the keto, as long as you don't kill yourself with sodium. Yep. Old Wisconsin, that's the brand. I got a giant package of Old Wisconsin meat sticks yeah. uh, on Amazon, and I they are... the stuff from when we were up at Sky House the last time. Yeah. The meat sticks are one carb each uh, from Old Wisconsin, and you can get a almost two-pound bag of them for $15 on Amazon. Beautiful. So, all right. So, we've hit, we've hit snacks, we hit breakfast, lunch. You know what you need in your life? On the keto diet, you need fiber because otherwise you're going to be constipated as shit from the yes. cheese. Well, what I recommend at the at the bare minimum, eat like a fistful of fresh spinach a day. So much spinach, like no joke. Every day for lunch, I have a fistful of spinach. There might be some cheese sprinkled in there, or maybe some meat from the dinner, uh, like from last night's dinner. That I didn't feel like eating, chucked on top. Yep. Yeah, I do a spinach salad pretty much every day for lunch with a vinaigrette. Guess what? Go to the condiment section in your supermarket. Look at the salad dressings. If they don't have vinaigrette in the name, stay away from them because they're probably going to be awful for you. Look at all the different vinaigrettes, and then make sure the carbs. Once again. Under that five gram, list. yeah. For my for my salad dressings, I try to make sure that they have like two grams or less a serving. Yeah, like for me, I my favorite standard dressing was like Italian or creamy Italian, which are both awful in the keto diet. But yeah, yep. that's great. Italian vinaigrette can't tell the difference between Italian vinaigrette and straight Italian. Except vinaigrette's got more of a bite, which I like. Good news to everybody. If you like vinegar, you'll love the keto diet. Yeah. Also, if you uh, get more, like, higher higher quality blue cheese dressing or, like, ranch dressing, you can't do the, like, $1.99 bottle because that's going to have so much fucking sugar in it. But if you go get the, like, $5, like, nice jar... Because Generally, those have about two carbs each. Because that's actually made out of blue cheese. Yeah, it's blue cheese, mayo, and cream, yeah. basically. Once it, once again, with the keto diet, you're going to spend a little bit more because the products you're buying are quality. Because why? They don't have a bunch of uses, carbs, and sugars shoved in there to substitute for the real food that is in the quality products. Yeah, generally anything that American uh, supermarkets have driven the price down on is mostly carbohydrates. So sadly, the the whole like easy prepared food aisle is out of the question on keto. Yes. Once again, it's it's taking that mindset to shop around the the perimeter of the supermarket is actually pretty solid for keto. Yeah. Except- yeah, you're gonna hit produce. You're gonna hit meat. You're gonna hit dairy. 
there is there is a there is a weird one though because yeah you have to be very careful because so so many like standard milks have sugar added basically like if you want dairy you need like heavy whipping cream which guess what you're not going to be using for freaking anything but if you want that peel of milk you can do almond milk just fine unsweetened yeah. Yes, yeah, I usually do a mix of half and half and almond milk for my milk-based things. I would um, I would recommend what I've experienced, heavy whipping cream with an unsweetened almond milk with a, with a vanilla extract added in there. That would be good. Yeah, now, like I've done that as a substitute for certain uh, new keto-friendly cereals, which we'll touch on at a later point. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll probably have a whole episode on keto cereal. Yeah, okay, so we've done lunch, we've done snacks, we've done breakfast, let's hit up dinner. Dinner for me has at least been where I prepare some, like, unusual vegetables, and at least 50 to 60% of the calorie, or, like, of my plate is taken up by vegetables at this point, whether it's asparagus, cauliflower, Broccoli, green beans, whatever. Yep. And yeah. Most vegetables, uh, most vegetables that don't grow in the ground are low enough carb that you can eat them. Um, or hey, just more spinach. Yeah. Most of them are high enough carb that you can't just eat as much as you want. The other catch is, even if they are kind of higher in carbohydrates, if they have enough fiber in them, your yes. body won't process them. So, say if you have a product that has six grams of carbohydrates per serving, but also four grams of fiber, you could basically subtract that four from the six. And yes. That is the two that your body will ingest. Yeah, that is probably a good thing to, to mention to our listeners uh, who are new to keto, that the important number is the net carbs, not the actual just top-line carbs. Uh, so when you look at it, you can subtract any fiber and anything that comes from sugar alcohols. Yes. From the total amount. So a lot of times you will see, like, I get a keto ice cream that has, like, 19 carbs per serving, but 10 of those carbs come from fiber and 8 of those carbs come from sugar alcohol. So the actual net carbs of that ice cream is one carb per serving. What, uh, what, uh, keto ice cream do you use? That's, uh, it's called Enlightened. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've had that one. Uh, it is very good. the The texture is a little bit weird. It's a little bit like. What does it use? Because I have a one in my house where it uses like trickery root fiber. Okay, now this uses a uh, erythritol. Yeah, it is enlightened. Enlightened, and you have to be careful. You have to make sure you get the keto one because they have like all of their ice cream is uh, ice cream products are like low calorie and like as much natural stuff as possible, but not all of them are keto. But the keto ice cream I've tried, they have a coffee flavored and they have a chocolate peanut butter flavored. And both of them have been amazing. Uh, right now I have in my house a, a buttered pecan and Ooh. a mint chip. And dude, oh my God. Like, Butter pecan is like a perfect keto ice cream. Yeah, no, like no joke. Like I'll just go down and just scrape and that like a pint will last me like a couple of days because I just sit there and like just scrape like a spoonful and put it in my mouth and just mm. I'm like alright that's all I need I yeah that's, I got it I yeah the uh, the enlightened it's like four servings per pint and I try to like not eat 
more than that because it is it's still like it's 200 calories a serving but only one carb so i try to to be careful oh yeah because even when stuff is uh another thing another when stuff is marked keto it doesn't necessarily mean you can eat the entire pint of ice cream you still have to control control yourself yes yeah and that's where that's where it really the importance of looking at the carbs per serving um comes in because like i got keto waffles not frozen waffles not too long ago and like they are keto friendly but you have to be very careful because it's it's like i think it's like eight net carbs per serving where a serving is two waffles so like it's keto and like it's well within like i try to make sure that it's like 10, 10 carbs or less per main me- per meal and right. trying to get as, as much below that as possible. So like it still fits within my dieting plans, but it's gotta be restrictive the rest of the day. That's all. Yeah. And you can't eat like four of the, four of those waffles becomes uh, strictly not keto. But what the trick is you take those waffles and then you put the keto ice cream on top of it. Mm, yeah, with the whipped cream because whipped cream is pretty much almost guilt free if you get the really high fat one. Yep. Anyway, what the hell were we talking about? All right, we got to shift off this topic. So just a we were on dinner uh, and then we got sidelined by dessert. But there you go. All right, we've hit all of the num. We've we've hit the primary stuff. Yes. Like you want, you got to have vegetables. You yes. gotta have good sources of protein. With a little bit of cheating here and there, you gotta have like cheese. Whatever cheese you prefer, get that cheese. Yeah. Chris and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. It is a labor of love, and we really hope it helps you on whatever path you're on and helps you find some new games to check out. If you like what you've heard so far, please consider rating and reviewing us on whatever podcatcher you use. It really helps other folks find us. If you want to get in touch, we are at StrengthSavePod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at StrengthSavePod at gmail.com. Now, let's talk about some games. So we just spent a lot of time talking about health stuff. Bunches. Bunches of time. We, we are not quiet people. But uh, the other thing that we have an obsession over uh, a shared obsession. Let's be honest, more so because the fitness thing is a new thing. Yeah. The fitness thing is a product of necessity. Because Um, we want to live to our (laughs) sixties. It would be nice. And solely so that we have more time to play games, which is very true. Our truest passion. And I mean, really kind of in general, all things nerdy. There are definitely some areas that, we shy away from. I think both of us are are lukewarm on anime. Uh, God, uh, as, as, despite some valiant efforts by a few individuals, there are some animes that I can at least appreciate. But no, it is not my flavor of choice. Yeah, I don't. There, there have been a couple, but not not a lot. Well, let's be um, honest. You and I are more Western style nerds. It's true. Uh, the the. Japanese art that I tend to like is the Japanese art that bears similarity to our like modern westerns and stuff. So like samurai films. Yeah, I was about to say like I appreciate OG Japanese style like or when we're talking about stuff that has been influenced by like Seven Samurai. 
and yeah. like that. That is what I want. I don't want necessarily. We won't go there. We won't go there because that's not what this is about. Exactly. Uh, there's a lot that could be said about about anime. We are not the ones to say it. We are not experts. Perhaps we should bring experts on at some later point. We could. We could have conversations about anime that involve us sitting silently while people we know talk about anime. <laughs> and if you could see our heads nodding, that's what we're doing. But really what it comes down to uh, for us is gaming and I like f- fantasy stuff, books, movies, horror, science fiction. Uh, books and movies, science fiction. Um, that is that is where our passions lie. And I mean, we met through a gaming group, focuses on board games and role playing games, and we have played a lot of hours of video games together. And we're both big, big literature nerds. Yes, we both read a lot of fantasy, sci fi, and horror. So this this segment of the podcast will be devoted to kind of all all of that, whatever we feel like talking about in a given week, if we read a really good horror novel recently, or uh, if we've played a game that was really cool. Yeah, we'll try to be kind of like relevant, I guess is the best term, but we'll also occasionally do like a dive into the past of why we are where we are now. Yes. So um, it's kind of just going to be general, general nerddom. And, uh, to start that off, we figured it would be good to first just talk a little bit about the kinds of nerdy stuff we're into and how we got into nerdy stuff. Uh, so, Chris, why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about your nerd journey? Okay. I was raised, love my parents, love my folks. I was raised in a very, like, um, embracing the jock attitude, like, I wasn't necessarily the best football player. I played lacrosse and stuff like that. My brother was was definitely more of the, I play football, I play all sports. My dad supported that. But in his defense, my dad also supported whatever you wanted. So he wasn't necessarily negative. But it didn't necessarily encourage me into a nerdy lifestyle because they just didn't know, which ultimately was where I wanted to go. So I played sports. And then ultimately what got me, or was like the thing that drew me back into, in this case, video games, was Halo. The standard dude bro first person shooter in the way back times before even Xbox Live. And I got ridiculously good at it. Blaine can attest to this. I I can vouch for Chris's Halo skills. It's like, oh, I haven't played Halo in about five years. And I just wipe the floor with people because I have some ingrained fucking skills. But that was, like, I was a competitive athlete in high school and college that dabbled in the acceptable nerd culture. You know, the Halo, the Call of Duty, that kind of stuff. And then it wasn't until, I'll be quite honest, till my late 20s, early 30s, where, like, I breathed deep of the D&D and all the other shit. Like, uh, like secretly, I was reading, like, H.P. Lovecraft. Like, you know, oh, I was acceptable. I also read Tom Clancy, but, like, reading Stephen King. I could admit to reading Lord of the Rings after the movies came out. But the era that you and I were born in blame nerd culture was not 
accepted at the time. That is something I can also attest to, having grown up in that culture. Yeah. So I was a jock who just happened to be able to take my hand-eye coordination in the video games. So I got super good at that. And Halo, just because you could play with a friend, you could do multiplayer, you had the ability to land party with a bunch of people at my in my dorm room. The moment I could include a bunch of people in and make it a competitive thing, that was my, not necessarily reintroduction, but my ability to allow people to know that I enjoyed nerd culture. It was your first, your first taste. It was my first taste of acceptance of what I enjoyed. Because before then, it was like, oh, you want to it's like, oh, you watch the like the alien movies, your one of your favorite movies. You like In the Mouth of Madness. I'm like, yeah, I like this weird shit. I'm not like great, yeah, I like the movie Rudy. It's not my favorite. I know anyway, who doesn't like Rudy. I mean exactly. Who doesn't like Rudy? But who prefers In the Mouth of Madness over Rudy? I do. I certainly do. Exactly. But like those were like the conventions of somebody who grew up born in the 80s going into the 90s that both you and I are of. We're, we're on the, like, we're, I like, I want to have been of the era of, like, the aughts where nerd culture was being embraced by everybody and not to be shamed for. Yeah. Yeah, I do often look at, like, modern modern day scenarios where, like, it has become, if not 100% acceptable, relatively acceptable in, yeah. like, standard culture to play Dungeons & Dragons. People I was like, I remember it. having to, like, hide my player's handbook just so people wouldn't see me reading it in the school library. To this day, like, I don't, I don't not say it, but there is definitely, like, a delay when I tell my parents, like, oh, we're going to play Dungeons & Dragons. Because they were born of the era where it's like, oh, that's for the devil. Yeah. Yeah, and luckily for me, like, my parents were very accepting of Dungeons yeah. & Dragons. Um, but I grew up in a town that was a very small evangelical Christian town. Mm. Um, which is why, like, when I was in the school library reading D&D books, I would, like, hide them behind other nudie books. Like they, were, like, they were a nudie magazine because, like... I didn't want some kid who was super evangelical seeing that and being like, oh, you're a Satan worshiper. Yeah, Blaine. I would say, like, I, I chose Halo as, like, breaking me into nerd culture, but it is still, like, the Halo and the Halo series. I still look forward to all of them, even though they've kind of gone to pot over the past couple of years. What's yours? For me, it is Fallout. Mm. Um, and I, I have been a fan of Fallout since I was uh, probably 10 years old when the first Fallout game came out, maybe even a little bit younger, 8 or 9. Um, not a game that I should have been allowed to play. Ooh, no, not at all. But it's also... Uh, <laughs> that, I related to the Alien movie. I think yeah. I saw that when I was 10. You shouldn't see a thing latch onto a human being's face and then its offspring rip out of their chest a little bit later as a preteen. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. Oh, Fallout 1 actually was only 97, so I was 13 when Fallout 1 came out. 
12 or 13. Still far too young to play Fallout 1. Yes. Well, well, here's the difference. I mean, with Fallout, the choices that you made impacted the game. A movie, yeah. there's a certain set of, there's a certain sense of disconnection. You're, you're just, uh, you're just observing. Yeah, you are encountering the story. You are not participatory yeah. in it. Yeah. In the Fallout games, if you murder a person, that it was because of your choices. Yeah. Happened. And particularly, Fallout 2 is only a year later. And Fallout 2 is the one where really, like, you can become an adult film star. There are uh, sex workers on all of the streets. When you go to, like, the major cities, I remember, like, escorts on the street being like, oh, I'd like to get into that power armor. Um, there's 14-year-old Blaine in 1998 playing Fallout 2. For me, it wasn't until Fallout 3 came out that I actually went back and played the originals. Yeah, and I think a lot of people had that experience, because, especially because the Fallout, the first two Fallout games were PC only. Exactly. They came out ages ago. It generally was something that like only people su- and they weren't super popular at the time. So like only people who were super into video games in the mid mid to late nineties or into super into PC games in the mid to late nineties knew about them. And so like it's exciting to see that there's a whole new life to Fallout One and Two on like GOG and Steam and everything. Yes in light of the newer Fallout games, which have all been awesome. And uh, like when we started talking about what would be our favorite games, I really, I think Fallout 4 is my favorite. I like... Really? Because and it's, I, I know I, that's, a, that's a controversial one. I mean, don't get um, me wrong. I enjoy Fallout 4. Uh, I think I might appreciate New Vegas. New Vegas is up there. New Vegas yeah, is... The bugs are fixed, obviously. Yeah. New Vegas is probably the, my second favorite of the newer games. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, let's be honest. Four, Ve- New Vegas, and three are the most polished. Yes. And have some of the more deeper stories. Yes. Um, and I think, like I, like I said, I like New Vegas a lot. And I like three a lot. And four was interesting because going into four, I was super nervous because they announced they were like completely overhauling the special system and all of the skill system was going to be different. And I was like, I'm, uh, I've gotten accustomed to a certain style of fallout, but I actually really like what they did with the, uh, the like skill, the feet trees in fallout four. No, like fallout four. I cannot criticize like the special system skill tree. Like all of that was good. Like it didn't break it. It might. And in fact, it might've enhanced it to be quite honest. Yeah, because it made a very, like, it added a layer of replayability because it allowed you to customize. It's like, oh, I want to be the sneaky sniper, but it allowed a certain level of like customization even with that. Yeah, and the fact that like all of the like special uh, perk trees, like you could take the initial perk early on, and then like you had to be higher level, so it let you really customize your character in a way that the earlier Fallout games didn't, because a lot of times you're like, all right, I'm going for this kind of build, which means that the first perk that's really going to like work for me is a level 12 perk, so until level 12, I'm just kind of taking whatever. Yeah. And in Fallout 4, it was like, no, like you start building your character at second level, really, and you know like what perks you're trying to get, and you know that, like, all right, well, like, 
the second level of this perk is going to unlock at 12 and then the second level of this perk is at 14 and so you're kind of pre-planning your character um, and like really looking at a character trajectory for the skills you want I think the biggest failing for me in Fallout 4 is the quote unquote unlimited leveling yeah yeah uh, it, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to that concept. What it comes down to is, like, eventually you hit a point where you've run out of quests, primary quests to do. And then it comes down to, all right, like, yes, you can now theoretically level as many times as you want. But it's always going to be, there's raiders harassing this settlement. Or there's mutants who have taken over this store. Go clear them out. And it's like, all right, well, that's fun a couple times but then eventually it's just like here are the same four quests over and over again have fun on leveling unlimitedly with them yeah that's and that's the problem because like that's the thing that certain things like fortnite does better where yeah okay you have repeating things going on but if you knew for a fact that once every two to three months an event was going to happen Something that would draw you in and, and yeah. you to be five levels higher, then yeah. Yeah, and I think like if Fallout 4 was an MMO where they could do those kind of events, or if there weren't already plans to make new other new Fallout games, yeah. and you knew that Fallout 4 was just going to be like continuously getting D- like small DLC. Well, that's what Fallout 76 was supposed to be, but they just fucking... Yeah, that did not... Go well. I have. I, I, I really. I mean, I'm tempted to go back and try 76 now that Wastelanders has come out, um, and they've added NPCs into the game. But I just don't. They, it, they haven't done anything to make you want to commit to it. Yeah, it is not. It's just not intriguing enough. And I say that as someone who has played every Fallout game in existence prior to 76. Well, it's, it's the same thing when it came to uh, the Elder Scrolls. Like, I've played Oblivion, Skyrim. I did a bunch of them. And then playing Elder Scrolls Online, I was like, something's missing. I don't I don't know what it is, but they dropped the ball. Yeah, and I feel like Elder Scrolls, and they're both controlled by Bethesda. Bethesda is yeah. a great world builder. Are great, like the worlds they build are fascinating, but I really think that they're a company. And the more I see about Elder Scrolls Online and Fallout seventy six, it feels like they are a company that should just make single player games, or at the very least, hand over the long term planning to somebody else. Yeah, that's also an option. Given a partnership with a company that has like the WoW kind of ability. Yeah, yeah. If you want. An MMO, get people who are used to working on MMOs. Because handing uh, handing a bunch of people who generally make single-player games or make, like, online fighting games, handing them some, yeah. something like Fallout and being like, make this an MMORPG. Yeah. That's not their, that's not their forte. Um, and shockingly, it did not yeah, turn out great. Which is a shame. But I mean, I guess it is, it is what it is, and it will be interesting to see now that Bethesda has been bought out by Microsoft. Yes. What 
what happens, and it could be very good or very bad. I don't yeah. really know. Well, we'll do. Uh, I would say we let's put that on a deep dive later once we see yeah. a little bit more going on there. Now, Blaine, I have a question for you. I start All right. off at the video game section. Okay. I want to know with you, board game. Talk to me. So. There are a lot of board games that I really love. Uh, And this was when we started talking about this, this was a tough pick for me because there are some board games recently that have started. Escaton. Started as a contender for for favorite game, Escaton being chief among them. But I think right now, number one for me still is the Betrayal franchise. So Betrayal at House on the Hill, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate, Betrayal Legacy. I mean, let's be honest, especially Betrayal Legacy. Because yes, Betrayal Legacy has been... That's just Betrayal on the Hill, because after you're done playing the game, it just becomes a, a, a customized version for you. And yeah, it is just such an awesome concept. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know about Betrayal, because now we're entering into territory where some of our listeners might might not have have quite the experience we do with board games and RPGs. Betrayal is a really interesting haunted house exploration game where you play a a group of characters that are about to explore a haunted house. And for the first, probably like half to two thirds of the game. Depending upon the scenario. Yeah. You are exploring the house. You have stats that let you move and interact with the house in different ways. But essentially, whenever you go through a doorway, you draw a tile and place it. So you're building the house as you explore. And as you place tiles and move into rooms, they have events and items and omens that you find. Uh, And the omens in particular are like creepy items based on different horror movies and horror tropes. And eventually, once a certain number of... What was that? I was going to say, like a haunted doll. Yes, a creepy haunted doll. a Stuff like that. Yeah, the, the a, a creepy book bound in human flesh. All of the kind of standard standard horror tropes are, are represented in there. Uh, once a certain number of omens are revealed, the haunt begins. And the haunt makes one of the players a traitor. And they, are, they become in some way involved in trying to let the house kill all of the other players. And so then it becomes this asymmetrical game where one person is controlling uh, the minions of the house trying to kill all of the other players and the other players are trying to depending on the scenario accomplish a certain set of of tasks that let them defeat the house it was just the first time i played it i had not i i had stopped playing board games for a while there was probably a good solid like five or six years where i hadn't played i don't think any board games uh and a friend of mine came for a weekend of role-playing games and while we were waiting for everyone to show up, he's like, oh, I bought this game that lo- looked like something you would really enjoy. And it was Betrayal. And we played it, and I was like, yeah, yes, this is this is everything I wanted in a board game. Yeah, it's it gives you that vibe on like the Hill House and all the haunted movies that you see, like haunted house movies going on, Poltergeist. And to be quite honest, the scenarios run the gamut. I can tell you one time, I was quote-unquote the bad guy, but in reality, I wasn't the bad guy. I was tormented by a demon, and I'm literally, like, trying to be the solo hero, 
someone someone is still salty about this and the rest of the human (laughs) beings are pitchfork and torch chasing after me it's not salty it, it, but it's, a, it's a superb example yes, of like and that's, scenarios that go on with this game. That's particularly like so. Betrayal. Previous versions of Betrayal had some interesting varieties of scenarios, and they had different scenarios that were based on different horror movies. The the like most kind of off the beaten path you would get as far as overall scenario structure would be like, oh well, no one's the traitor, and there's this like hellish beast that's appeared, and you have to as a group try to kill it. Um, but in Betrayal Legacy, there that's where the the scenario of you being the wayward hero came from. They did a really good job of creating these scenarios where, like, there's actual suspicion cast. Well, remember the one time where it was all of us trying to save, like, Dr. Frankenstein and yes. from the mob? So all yeah. we was delaying the mob and trying to find a portal to save Dr. Frankenstein and this monster. Yeah, that one was awesome, too. There's so many, and Betrayal Legacy has so many really cool scenarios that are are very different um, and kind of outside of the box of traditional Betrayal. And I love that it makes you, like, especially the more you've played, like, the more you play Betrayal Legacy, the more suspicious you become of everyone. Oh, God, yeah. It actually builds that kind of like thing esque tenseness among the players because, like, if you've played multiple scenarios, you're like, there are scenarios where we're kind of all the traitor. There are scenarios where no one's the traitor. There are scenarios where the person we think the traitor who is the traitor is really good, and like, it is just this constant string of like, I have going into this new scenario, I have no idea, so I kind of suspect everyone until I'm either dead or proven wrong. Oh, yeah. Like, no joke. I, I had picked, like, uh, something else for my our, uh, my board game. But I, I won't lie. The thing, Infection the Outpost 31, was definitely up there. That's and, another one. That's another good one. That's probably top five for me, which is impressive because I don't generally like hidden roll games. Uh, and I love the thing. Uh, that is definitely we'll have to do an episode maybe where we talk about that specifically. Just it, yeah, because that or better yet, we just focus on the thing as a movie, a board game, a video game. Which, by the way, the video game one I think it was a PlayStation Two was superb. Interesting. I'll have to actual sequel to the movie. Or I will have to. It's a, it's either a prequel or sequel, one or the other. Yeah, there we go. The thing, two thousand two third person shooter survival game. Oh man, it was because you could recruit NPCs to your team. You weren't sure if they were infected or not. Oh, that is that is awesome. Yeah, exactly. So no, let's save that as a a a nerd the, the nerd side. But yeah, so Betrayal, like I said, Betrayal just, and all of the versions I've played have been really cool. The Baldur's Gate version's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I could always play those. Yeah, and that's a game, that is one of those games when people are like, oh, I don't really know what I want to play. One of my answers is always, I will always play Betrayal. Easily. Like, if Betrayal is something you want to play, I will always play it. The one that I, I, I haven't, I've, it's in my Amazon cart uh, to yeah. pick up 
sometime soon is they did just release Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, a Scooby-Doo-themed <laughs> Betrayal at House on the Hill, which I am 100 fucking percent in for. Okay, I gotta ask you, Blade, which member of the Scooby-Doo gang are you? Oh, that's a... I think Shaggy. I don't think... Alright, I gotta ask you, who do you think I am? Oh, that's a good... I, I know what you're gonna say, though, before I even ask the question. I don't know. It's tough, because, like, you have... The fuckability of Velma, I understand. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you do have a Velma sexiness about you. I... I... <laughs> who do you think you are? Because I don't even... I can't even... Yeah, I mean, uh, to be quite honest... I guess Fred, if I'm going to go straight gender line. Yeah, and that's the tough thing, because you do have some Fred qualities, but, no but you are way more laid back than Fred. Yeah, no, like, uh, I'm almost like a combination of, like, Velma and... Daphne? Daphne. Yeah, like, I could be a, I could be a Daphne or a Velma when it comes to it, like... Yeah, and realistically, I like, I, I am probably, like, a Scooby-Velma hybrid... Velma. Because I have that nerdiness and the like, particularly in more modern Scooby Doo adaptation adaptations, the sarcasm that they give to Velma. Oh yeah, they, um, they make her a much stronger character. Yeah, but I do also have the like stoner laid backness of Shaggy. Yeah, no, like I would give you. That's the problem with character choice. But anyway, we're we're getting off topic here. All right. But yes, yeah, so there is a, a Scooby-Doo betrayal that I am going to purchase sometime soon, so we will definitely have to play that and see. Oh, hell yes. I am super intrigued to see how how it plays out. All right, so we talked about your board game. Yes, yeah, so what is what is your pick for favorite board game? It is my favorite board game because it's also influenced by one of my favorite pieces of literature, Dune. Ah, oh, Dune. Who's that Zadarek? Ah, oh, dude, it's so good. Which which part? The book? Or the all, I mean, all of it. Because I mean, even as as someone who has a soft spot for David Lynch, uh, yeah. I even love the Lynch film. It's more for a movie, but it is I mean, it is something. To explain the the uh, board game itself, though, especially the most recent thing that's been put out for purchase by uh, what is it? Um, Gale Nine. Yes. So they released the game with the original rules, but also all the quote-unquote advanced, advanced rules, which is I play with most of them, and Blaine and I have played with most of the advanced rules. It is a strategy game where, depending upon what factions are involved, there are set rules that are involved with the game, but every single faction has something that breaks the rules. And it is so complex that you would have to become an expert in playing a specific faction to get good at the game. And then yeah. even then, depending upon random events, and then on top of the fact that you can make alliances with people, not bullshit alliances, legally binding alliances... Yeah, I do really like the alliance system of the game. Yeah. So, Dune is one of those games where, like, ever since I've been reintroduced to board gaming, I have found that 
I am definitely a fan of strategic board games. Sight, Root, Twilight Imperium. I choose Doom because, A, it's not everybody's favorite, but I like the fact that you have to get proficient in a particular faction. There's only ever five, at most. But then it locks you in to a light Twilight Imperium, where you can be like, oh, yeah, Blaine, you and I are friends. Wink, wink, nod, nod, and then you can stab each other in the back. Uh-uh. Yeah, and you're you're going to have to at some point because only one person can win Twilight Imperium. Exactly. Not with Doom. So I remember the the filth win that Blaine and I had where oh. I was House Atreides and he was House Arkham. And was gross. In the game. So we we did the partnership together, which oh. by the way was very overpowered. Yeah, they they are they are very powerful together. But it was, as a fan of the series, so gross to have Harkonnen and Atreides aligned. It was anathema. But this is the perfect example of it, though. We remember it. Yeah. It is, like, I I, I, I enjoy board games. I didn't get into it until much more recently than Blaine, but still... I can say every single game of Dune I've played, though, I remember it. Fun. Yeah. I I like... A lot of frustration. One or the other. Yeah. I like Dune a lot. I... I, My one experience playing it was uh, us making the awful mistake of deciding after the ball dropped on New Year's Eve... Yes. ...to just start a quick little game of Dune. Um, Just a quick game. Just a quick little game of Dune. Uh, it is a, a two-hour minimum game, so at, at minimum, and add the fact that everyone was tired and/or drunk. Only one of us at the table had played it before. Yeah, uh, it was a solid three-plus-hour game. Started at like twelve fifteen on New Year's Eve, so yes. I, I have regrets not having played Doom. But remember, having... but remember fondly though. Yes, like, it was. It is a really good game, and I like that it is. Like, like of- if I could tell you I could get, like, certain inv- in, uh, harangue certain individuals to play with us, you'd be down, right? Oh, God, yeah. And what, I, what is fascinating to me about Dune is that, on a whole, it is a very simple game. Mechanically it speaking, it is a product, because the... The version that you have, it's it's a, re, a, a like, cleaned-up reprint of an 80s board game. Oh, yes. And when you look at the rules of the game, it feels like an 80s board game. It's a little bit, it's very simple, and it's a little bit like there are times where you look at it and you're like, oh, I I don't know if I feel like that is terribly interesting mechanically in a vacuum. But then you play it, and it is shockingly in-depth as far as the strategy goes for a game that is, at its core, pretty damn simple. Yes, and the fact that every faction has a counter to the rules. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. The like, you know, being able to like know certain pieces of information if you're the Atreides. The best part is like a lot of the powers you are given are based on things you could find in the source material. Yes, 
Yeah, I mean, it's all very much based on like little ways to cheat the rules that make a lot of sense for uh, the faction that they are. So, like the spacing guild getting money anytime you transport troops to the to the planet, like that makes sense because the spacing guild is the way to travel to Arrakis. Or the fact that anytime you send soldiers to a planet, the Bene Gesserit, you can just send an advisor with them. Yep, just, hey, I got my advisor going around. You know, if you're the Atreides, you have kind of a limit, a limited prescience where you're able to, like, you are the one who knows certain information about, like, cards that are in play because there's latent psychic abilities in the Atreides house. It's just, it is really cool the way that, like, if you are a fan of the lore... There's just so many awesome little nods, even like, you know, when you when you buy cards to use in combat and you get like a junk card, you get cards like a Balisset, which like the first time I got a Balisset, I was angry because it's a junk card that's useless. But it was also awesome because I'm like, oh, it's Gurney's it's Gurney's instrument. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, like if you're the Harkonnen, most people only get one traitor playing the game. Where the Harkonnen get like three, three, fine, uh, three more on top of that. It, it just, it, all of like the special rules for each faction just fit exquisitely perfect. Yeah. In the lore. Yeah, and that was part of what made when we played our alliance so ungodly was the fact like I got four, four traitor cards. And I think three of them were my own heroes, which at first I was like, oh, that kind of sucks. And then we allied and you showed me your your one traitor card, which was my my last hero. So yep. I was like, all right, going into combat with anyone now, I can use all of my heroes freely because like, oh. I know. And you as the Harkonnens just became the thug that beat yeah. up everybody else. And then I just would lean in and whisper him like, they don't have this poison. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just such a good game, and I I like strategy games like that where it's like, all right, mechanically there isn't a lot going on here, because what we want you to focus on is strategic thinking. Because if you get a strategy game where there's just like too many rules to remember, it becomes more difficult to think strategically because you're also having to balance like. 80 different rules in your head and you're like all right well i'm trying to both remember how this kind of combat scenario plays out and also think about like what might they have what can i do to counter that and it's just it's too much whereas dune is kind of that perfect strategy game where it has just enough rules well that's that's why i chose dune over twilight Twilight is a huge commitment it is dune it is a big commitment, but less so. Like that, it, it, it hits that like medium itch of okay. At the when you, if you want to play a tactical game, you can play like a scythe or something, where there is a certain level of complexity. Dune hits that middle ground, and Twilight Imperium, and God knows what the newest expansion will do. Yeah, hit that far end. Yeah, I think Dune is a good choice. And I like Twilight Imperium a lot, but I do think... And I mean, I, I would need to play Dune a little bit more. Well, um, but I do... A, I, I think I do like Dune more. All you gotta do is ask. Yeah, we'll definitely have to make that happen sometime soon. Oh, yeah. 
All right. So the last thing we wanted to talk about is role playing games. Uh, so don't tell me about your favorite RPG, Chris. Oh shit! All right. Well, the one I played the most is like fifth edition D anD. d But the one I would want to play way more of, I've only played it a few times. And like you and I playing, I played it once together in one of the <laughs> the most ridiculous. But also most memorable sessions of RPGs played together. Yeah. Call of Cthulhu. Oh, Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu is generally most RPGs give you like the sense of empowerment. Call of Cthulhu does not do that. It rips your ability to affect the world around you out of your hand. And it just douses you in cosmic dread and horror. Yeah, it is. Despite H.P. Lovecraft being a gigantic, huge douchebag covered in fucking shit. Yeah. The dread that is created from his creations. And that is the RPG called Cthulhu. I love. Yeah, and I think, and I mean, Chaosium included, a lot has been done to separate the Cthulhu, particularly the gaming experience of Cthulhu from Lovecraft. Yes. Um, which I think is good because I think that Lovecraft I mean, did some important things for horror, but like you said, he's a, not a good human being. Listen, back in the day where when he was alive, people still thought he was kind of like, ooh, he's kind of racist. Yeah, he was, cr- he was cringy in the 30s. Uh, Back when racism was acceptable. <laughs> yes. But uh, particularly his work entering uh, the Creative Commons has been good because you can support game designers who are doing really cool cosmic horror stuff and none of that money goes to the Lovecraft estate. Exactly. So like, you're, you, you don't have to worry about, like, am I supporting bigotry with by supporting this cool piece of, of gaming... Uh, accessory like if I buy Lovecraft Desk or if I buy Fate of Cthulhu and like the money isn't going to his estate in any way shape or form perfect example uh, what is it uh, it's um, Jordan Peele Lovecraft yes. right now which by yeah. the way HBO if you haven't seen it or you haven't read the book I need to I love the book I both. need to check the show out because that it, it gives love the setting of uh, existential dread and cosmic horror alongside Jim Crow era America, which is also equally like messed up. Yeah, yeah. The way that book handles the concept of uh, uh, of racism as its own form of cosmic horror. Yeah, um, where there is like traditional Lovecraftian cosmic horror in the story, but. You almost, the, the racism of the story is framed in such a way that it is separate but equal to the cosmic horror. Yeah. So um, like, it's awfulness. Like the local racist town sheriff is almost, if not as bad as a sugar showing up. Yeah. Destroying people. And I'm like, I actually am rooting for the sugar because you, you know that why I do that. Because he's indifferent. Yeah. There's no hatred behind what he's doing. Nope, he is just a a mechanism of the cosmos. Yep. 
and that is in fact better. Yeah, it's, it is a slight step up from the racist sheriff. Yeah, and uh, like Lovecraftian horror is so interesting, and it's like in role playing form, it's it's its own odd bag yeah. because it is something that you it. it takes the standard role-playing experience of we are big damn heroes capable of doing anything. Yes. And I mean, completely inverts it where it's like in those games, it's like you're barely even decent at the things you're supposed to be good at. Exactly. And that's why I chose Call of Cthulhu. I, I, I love the concept that you are not necessarily, you're not a member of the fellowship of the rings. Yeah. You're a group of individuals who may or may not have the capability to solve even the most minor of problems thrown at you. Like I enjoy I, I enjoy that. I want that. Like because it is almost more realistic. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it, it captures that feeling of hopelessness in the face of things much greater than you that cosmic horror strives to capture. I remember there's an old, I think, fourth edition Call of Cthulhu adventure that is a, you are World War II, you're American soldiers in World War II going up against Nazi zombies. And in the intro to that book, it specifically recommends that each player have three to five characters made uh, to make transition when a character dies simpler. Now... Here's the thing with Call of Cthulhu. Like, I appreciate that people may die to a certain extent, but having them go through, like, a meat grinder like that, like, Tomb of Annihilation level, nah. Yeah, it is. It's a balance that you need to strike with Call of Cthulhu, where, like, you need to have the fear of death, but also a game where you're, that's a quote unquote campaign, and you're starting a new character every other session. And that's fine. And it, with Call of Cthulhu, if you establish like a society or an yeah. order, that is the reason why there is a, a constant campaign. And then you as player characters just inhabit a new member of that order or society. Then that's fine. That's how you work that in. Yeah, it's manageable. Uh, it's something that I... And I don't think most horror games tend to have. And this is something that we might probably would have to do as its own topic eventually but like in the cliff notes version i don't think horror games necessarily work as long-term campaigns well um, i think that horror can't exist naturally over an extended period of time yeah like you it, you get hard hard out and the like required building of tension and release of tension works uh, insanely well in single sessions um, and can work all right over the course of a handful of sessions. But more than, let's say, five sessions, I don't think you can maintain the kind of build and release of tension that horror requires. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, let's be honest. Like, you and I have played a lot of different, like, horror RPGs. We have at this point. <laughs> the best have been single session blowouts a short term like over at least three or four sessions like there is a building and an end to it yeah and if it's only going to be three or four sessions the gm can kind of plan to like 
have interesting cliffhangers at the end of each session, which is a great way to like carry the tension from the first. Like you're not going to get 100% tension retention. Yeah. But if you end on a major cliffhanger, like, you know, you're in a cabin and a monster breaks through the door session over, uh, there's at least going to be some carryover from session one to session two then of that tension that you can then start building from. Oh yeah. No, like, Perfect example. I was running a 5e game of Curse of Strahd. Don't want to go too in-depth, but I'm not necessarily ruining anything late game. So, you go to this town. You go to the coffin maker's place, which has been turned into a home where you got to find an objective, but deal with a, a coven of vampires spawn. Yep. So, through the natural selection and choices that my players made, it ended up like the bard, because I didn't have a rogue, stealthing up to the second floor where the vampire spawn were. But also, like, the super strong, like, bulky characters waiting for her to stealth around, they broke in, interacting with the owner of the establishment. Awesome timing. So I gave exposition about how you shouldn't go up to the second floor. Because that's where all the vampire spawn were. I was cutting like back and forth between the conversation and like the bard making these decisions to keep exploring. I'm like, mm, yeah, all right, we're making these things. Keep going. Yeah, but, that is perfect. Like d- doing like the Tarantino like hard cut between things, and you're just like that tension building. That is perfect. Yeah, and I that's think hard to do. Yeah, I think the 5e modules like Curse of Strahd and now Rime of the Frostmaiden that are more horror-oriented do a good job of, like, they're not horror games. Even Curse of Strahd, which is set in Ravenloft with a vampire as the main villain, isn't a horror game. It has horror encounters. It has. Um, It's it's more, like, niche, and it's, yeah, like you said, it's got moats. It's not a... Yeah, and I think that's that's how you can do, like, a long-term campaign that has horror elements where like it's there it's part of the story um but it isn't the whole focus of the story it's like all right there's here's this is this specific encounter and it's going to be creepy but it's also just going to be that single session and then the next session we might have a very kind of straightforward classic D dungeon crawl or or just straight up like okay here's the mystery and puzzle figure it out yeah um, and I think that's how you do it if you want to do long-term horror. Well, is, let's be honest. You can't sustain horror over the long term. Yeah, particularly if you're if you're leaning into horror tropes, eventually it just becomes, all right, cool, something just jumped out of the woods. Let's fight it. Again. Okay. So we did my call of Cthulhu. What's your RPG, bro? So I think my RPG, and this is tough. I mean, I, and there's this might might be the choice just because I'm diving back into it right now. Um, but I think I have to pick Numenera. The game I've never played, but I can't tell you how much I want to play this game. It is it is really cool. So it's released by Monty Cook Games, and the base base premise of Numenera is inspired by a quote by Arthur C. Clarke, uh, which is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So basically, you want a science fiction 
fantasy environment meshed together. That is that is what you get there. Uh, so it's one. It's on. It's set on Earth, one billion years in Earth's future. Oh yes. Uh, nine. You you live in what is called the ninth world. It's the ninth world because it is the ninth civilization to populate Earth. We we present day humans are the first, and then there are seven other civilizations that have risen to epochs and then been destroyed or disappeared in some way. Um, And each one became more and more technologically advanced than the one before it. And so now you have a world that on its surface looks like kind of traditional medieval European fantasy. But all of the magic that exists are the detritus of technology of past civilizations. So like the wizards in Numenera are called nanos because while they, some of them might be scientific enough to understand what they're doing. Some of them might legitimately think they're just straight up wizards, but what they're doing to create magic is manipulating the nano technology in the very air around them to create magical effects. There are miracle workers who are cleric types who walk around healing people Uh, And really what they're doing is using medical technology from previous civilizations to heal people. And it looks like magic because you have no concept of like actual technology in this world. So you just think that the gods have granted this person the power to heal wounds. And it is just a really cool... I've been rereading the general description of the ninth world going kingdom by kingdom. Um. And it is just, there are so many cool concepts. Monty Cook, I think, is, if not the best, one of the best world builders in role-playing design. Like, to be quite honest, like, if you took a single individual for impact on the RPG world, Monty Cook would probably be number one. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been a big deal since he worked on Planescape in the early 90s. He is one of the creators of third edition Dungeons and Dragons. After third edition, he left Wizards and started releasing really cool third, edi- third edition content like Tolis and Arcana Unearthed, and then proceeded on to founding Monty Cook Games and creating Numenera and all of the Cypher system offshoots of Numenera, uh, and then Invisible Sun, which is a game that I'm sure at some point, once we actually get a chance to start our campaign... Right. If we don't play that game, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. I, I spent a lot of money on Once we can play in person again. Like, I have all the PDFs of that. So we yeah, need- we're, we're playing Invisible Sun. It is just everything he does is incredibly cool. Oh, no. Like, I've walked the Monty Cook stuff. And I'm like, God damn it. Why can't I do this? Yeah. Like, so Numenera is one we should we should seriously talk about trying to do a Numenera campaign sometime because that's listen, Brad, if you want to dip into Numenera, I'm all listen. I'm all for. It. I am. That, that's why we podcast right now. That that's what this this is why this exists at the moment. It's true, but yeah, I mean, Numenera is just so cool. And there's uh, I don't know if you've played it, but they have uh. Torment Tides of Numenera is a Numenera video game that came out a couple years ago that is absolutely fantastic. I actually just re-downloaded it on my computer to play through it again. Was it on Steam? 
Yeah. It is, it's very much in the tradition of, they call it the spiritual successor to Planescape Torment. And it's that kind of like third person isometric, like top down RPG that D&D was famous for in the 90s. Yeah. But it is just really cool. FYI, when uh, the Baldur's Gate 3 comes out, you got to do God on that. Oh yes, that will be a, that. That might be something if if we have listeners, might be something worth streaming. Yeah, yeah, I think that gives our 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 new listeners uh, a good idea of the type of gamers we are, and some of some of the stuff that we'll be talking about as we move forward with this podcast. And again, it's going to be a lot of just kind of what what have we been doing lately. Um, with some deep dives into specific games, specific genres. Uh, occasionally we might do gaming advice if you are a player or a dungeon master, some advice on how to get more out of your game. Or when it comes to fitness, we'll recommend, or if we happen to talk about a specific recipe or ingredients we've used, like, for instance, Wayne and I will definitely be talking about like the pizza dough. We had yes. indulged in the week prior, which, oh my God, why are you going to use anything else? It is so good. Mm-hmm. And then, depending upon the results of my current baking escapades, the cheesecake I just made and our reactions to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to try that. But yeah, so we'll be talking about a lot of different stuff and each each episode will do a single topic in fitness and a single topic in nerdery in general and we'll just fill you in on a little bit about how our fitness journey is going what what we have experienced recently in fitness and then the same with nerdy stuff and so if you if you are into both of those things hopefully you'll listen to the whole episode if you're into one or the other, we'll keep them well separated so that you can listen to the fitness and turn us off or skip the fitness and listen to the nerd stuff, however you want to do it. We're here. If you're willing to listen to us, we're willing to talk to you. Certainly. Thank you all for, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this collection of non-sequiturs about fitness and gaming, uh, and we will talk to you all soon. Thank you for listening to the Strength Save podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A reminder, if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review us to let other folks know. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at StrengthSavePod. Our theme song is Drunken Sailor by Dr. Octorok off the album Sham Rock. Check The Good Doctor out on Bandcamp. We'll be back in two weeks to talk more about health and games. Until then, keep doing what you're doing. You are awesome and know that we believe in you.